what can a woman in the music industry do by herself? What women have gotten anywhere without a male presence? And what companies, management companies, labels are women owned? There are some that are just men. And I just wonder, can a woman only company make it? And I'd love to see it. You know, maybe there are some and I want to know more. And I also don't really have the answer because what kind of world do I want to see? Do I want to see a world where it's women only companies without men involved in it? I don't think that's what I want. I think what I want to see is balance and equality and equal opportunity. I don't want to see an all one way or the other, but wouldn't it be nice if it was possible? What are the possibilities is what my questions are for women who are in the industry. That was Valerie June, and this is Shiro's a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, She Rose Radio. She Rose is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. And welcome to Shiro's, everyone. My name is Carmel Holt, and so glad that you could be here as this week we bring you a special edition of Shiro's featuring a conversation with Valerie June, recorded live at On Air Fest on Saturday, February 25th, as part of this annual podcast festival. And we take you now to the penthouse floor of the Wythe Hotel in Brooklyn for Shiro's Live at On Air Fest. On Air Fest! Thank you so much for being here and thank you for having us. Our guest today is a true multi-hyphenate, a singer, a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist and recording artist, performer, poet, author, and I would add to that list, a spiritual warrior. And yes, a Shiro. Born in 1982 in Jackson, Tennessee and raised in nearby Humboldt, Valerie June grew up steeped in gospel music and singing in the church got her first guitar at 15, and made her way to Memphis just a couple years later. Her first band was a duo, Bella Sun, and they put out an album in 2001, and then Valerie went solo, putting out a series of self-released albums, the first in 2006, then in 2008, and an EP as Valerie June at the Tennessee Express in 2010. But it was following a move here to Brooklyn that things began to take off. She met and then went on to work with Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys on songs that would become her breakthrough, critically acclaimed fourth album, Pushing Against a Stone. That would go on to land on Rolling Stone's top 50 albums of the year, won a Blues Music Award, her hailed 2017 follow-up, The Order of Time, also landed on nearly every year-end best-of list, and her latest high-water mark, 2021's The Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers, garnered Valerie her first Grammy nomination and two Americana Music Award nominations for Album of the Year and Song of the Year. And in 2021, she put out her first book called Maps for the Mind. Modern world. And last May, her first illustrated children's book, Somebody to Love, 
All to say that two decades into her already illustrious career, Valerie June continues to forge an incredibly inspiring, not to mention prolific path. And as we're about to hear, she carries a message of joyful resistance, courageous dreaming, and compassionate love. Please join me in welcoming to Shiro's Valerie June. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you. I'm very emotional today, so that made me want to cry. Good. We Can like emotion. Can I get away with crying today? Please. Please do. I don't know why. It's just been hitting me randomly. That's good, though. Isn't that the gift of being a woman? Yeah. One That's of the many? That's exactly what it is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, where did that heat just come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel it. And you know it's contagious, right? So pretty soon I'm going to start crying. And then this whole room is going to start crying. It's good tears, though. Yeah, as long as there's a smile. We can smile through the tears. I thought a good way to start today, Valerie, would be to do a breath practice. And I know that you've been working with the breath a lot. You have a spiritual yoga and breathing practice, but maybe just to bring us all into this space, because this is a space that is about equality and what unites us more than breath, right? Exactly. So I would like to just invite everyone, as we all come from our different places in the day, busy day in a busy city, to bring your awareness to your breath and just gently watching as you breathe in and out. And now just taking one deep breath in together and slowly releasing it out. And this time as we breathe in, inviting a light, whatever color you choose, and feeling your body with that color of light. And as you breathe out, surround your body with that light. And just breathing in your own time and watching as the light moves across this room, the busy city of New York, and the entire planet, allowing it to lift up others. Someone's in a cab somewhere and they don't even know why, they just felt a jolt of joy. And you can slowly just come back to this room, taking a last breath in, in this space, and slowly releasing it out, and staying in the space as long as you need to, as we talk, knowing that we breathe all day long, but the awareness that comes with each breath is something that we rarely take our time to really notice. But we can in every moment notice it. And that's called mindfulness in action in my life. In every moment. Thank you. Thank you. us about the breath 
and where you first learned about breathing practices. Where did that come in for you? Well, as far as learning it, it's a very odd time that I brought my awareness to my breath was when I moved to Memphis from humble Humboldt, Tennessee. And when I moved there, my spirit was broken in a lot of ways because of family reasons. And I said, well, you know, I'm just going to light a candle and sit in front of it and focus on the flame as I follow my breath. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do that every day. And I started to do it and just receive a calmness in that time period. And I eventually started to work a whole lot of jobs, many jobs in one day. And one of the jobs that I worked was as a cleaning lady. And I would go into these rich people's houses that trusted me with the keys to their entire lives. And the lady who got me into the cleaning had accompanied two chicks in a broom, and she hired all of these independent contractors who were artists like me to clean. And so as she said, you are not just a cleaning person. You are a domestic artist, and cleaning is your meditation. And I was like, well, I should just take my practice with the candle into these houses. And as I did that for seven years of my life, almost every day of the week, several hours, maybe three to six hours, I would go into the houses in silence and I would, breathing in, dusting, Mm. breathing out, dusting, a lot like Karate Kid. Right. (laughs) Wax on, wax wax off. off. Muffin, oh, there's the toilet and don't look. (laughs) (laughs) Following my breath through all of that and I didn't share that side of my life with the world until the pandemic. And it was because of many reasons, but I had been working with a group in Memphis called My Grounded, and it's a bunch of artists who come together and go into the school system. And we went with Sister Peace, who works with Thich Nhat Khan and is a Buddhist nun, and did mindfulness practice with the students and art. And when they started to just take time out of their day for the breath and create. It just shifted the energy of the high school and the students and the brilliance just started to flow like in ways you couldn't catch all of it. It was raindrops of gold and fortune. And so working with Sister Peace just kind of made it where I was like, this is not something I can keep to myself anymore. Especially not with the loss and the words that George Floyd said as he passed. I can't breathe. That awareness of the breath that COVID-19 was attacking the respiratory system and we were as a world struggling to breathe. I was just like, you know, it's all coming for me back to breath. So I started to share my practice with other people during that time period. And I do it when I need to, when I want to, or when I feel called to. I don't do it all the time for the world. Mm -hmm. I do it all the time for me. But for the world, I have to keep some things for myself. Breathing is such a big part of singing, too. Breath control is something that, I mean, when you study singing, you learn. I was curious about your experience learning to sing and because you were already in a communal space as a kid in a group that was breathing together and singing together, even though that wasn't a conscious part of it. 
Yes. You know, when I was very young, I went to an all-black church, which was, say, maybe like two or three white people and 500 black people Mm -hmm. breathing together and singing together, all kinds of voices. And then when I got into my 12, 13, we moved to a different part of town. And that was a predominantly white church we went to with 500 white people and seven of us. Wow. <laughs> and the singing and the breath was so different because the, they were both Church of Christ. But at the black church, the singing, there are no instruments in the church that we go to. Or It was more from the lower part of your diaphragm and belly and it's just like mm-hmm. singing the songs from there and then when I went to the white church I heard all the songs from more of a headspace which is more like and so the breath coming from different places I learned through singing at church that it comes from different places in the body to get different sounds yes <laughs> and how you know I started to examine even then how breath transcends the physical and race and all of that it binds all things it's you know so when I talk about it in the sense of the pandemic and the challenges and that we're all facing It's, to me, a way of uniting people because, or not just people, but us with all of existence. I know there is a home inside And no two souls every dream of us Each breath is gold, a pathway light, a guide Garden to grow, keep on Some call it prayer, some say you should not cease. Some sit and breathe, some fall on their knees. I'd be a fool to let it have a name. Earth is a school to shine is why you came. Home Inside from Valerie June's 2021 Grammy and Americana Award nominated album, The Moon and Stars Prescriptions for Dreamers. I'm Carmel Holt, and if you're just joining us, this is She Rose Live at On Air Fest with Valerie June. What were your dreams growing up? Well, my father was the biggest dreamer in the world, and he inspired us, all of us, the kids, to be dreamers. First, the dreaming started when we lived in different conditions. You know, when I was first born, we lived in a pretty nice home for a family with two kids. And then they hit hard times and we moved to a house that was falling apart with the rats running around. And then we bought some land out in the country and they built a shop and we lived in it. And it was pretty intense and rough in some ways, but the shop burned down. It was basically a garage we lived in because he owned a construction company, and so he wanted to have the shop on the land so he could drive his trucks in, and he wanted to eventually get enough money to build a house on the land where we would live. So that was the dream, to have a house. Mm -hmm. And the dream would lead us to go to nicer neighborhoods. And, you know, my parents didn't really do stuff or have friends. They would load us in the car, and we'd go look at houses. 
you know, we'd be in the van and we would hear them talking about, oh, I like that bay window or I like that. And they would sculpt this dream. And my mom always wanted to be an architect and she's an artist and she draws and paints and does all kinds of things and builds as well. And so she started to draw out the house and she drew it up enough that they took it to one of my father's architects and they got the plans and they had this dream. But also he had the dream of being a music promoter in our town and he did some of it, but he lost a lot, you know. And so he would take the money from the construction company and use that money to help funnel his dream in music. And it led us to a lot of hard times, you know, times where the lights were cut out and we didn't have any food and shit like that, you know? <laughs> it wasn't no food, it was just low food where I saw the penny jars being broken, wow. you know? But that kind of thing and him getting up the next day after having the failures, let me see what dreaming was really about. It's not soft. Dreaming is pretty intense. It's pretty vicious, it's forceful, and it's concrete and intense. So I learned how, like, it's okay and a failure is not a loss and that um, you just wake up every day and rewrite the story so that you can continue dreaming and that everything we see in this world that's man-made was somebody's dream. And that's why dreams matter. And so I started dreaming, and I had the dream that... <laughs> I wanted to learn how to write songs in a structured way or that I wanted to paint or that I wanted to dance or whatever I have a dream of. I just keep dreaming. But also in the world sense, I look at dreams and I say, well, what is democracy? It's a dream. We can't go buy it at the grocery store. Like a banana, I'm holding it. America, that's a dream. <laughs> you know, all these things, these systems we like live within, they are dreams. So that's why dreams are so powerful and important to me because they're not just these soft and fluffy, I have a, like, I wanna be a, this, they are that, but they are also what shapes our world. And if we want to create new ways of existing and being in worlds, then we have to dream. We have to use our imagination and wander and be playful in this world, you know? So him being a dreamer kind of taught me to dream in that way. And he would always take us to Memphis during Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we'd have a family day where we would go out there on the lawn of the Lorraine Motel. And we would be with masses of people respecting and honoring the legacy of Dr. King and his dream. So dreaming was, it's just always been a big part of my life. Is there a light? You have inside you can't touch A looking glass can only show you so much Follow the signs, slowly but steady, don't rush The day will come when you're ready, just trust. Dancing on the astral plane, holy water cleansing rain, floating through the streets. 
Plane from the 2017 Valerie June album, The Order of Time. This is Shiro's Live at On Air Fest. I'm Carmel Holt. Where did you and music meet up where that part of your dream started to become a reality? Like making your own music, playing guitar, writing songs. How did that happen? It started in Memphis. I moved there and I got a few jobs at coffee houses and waiting tables and different things. And One of the coffee houses that I worked at was filled with writers and artists and musicians, some who've won Oscars now for their films that they were writing when I served them coffee, like Craig Brewer. Wow. But I watched these artists, and they would always come in with the notebook, and they would come in with their things, and I just was like, well, let me get to be friends with some of them, and... I didn't play music at the time, but my partner, my husband, husband did, and he would be playing in the other room, and I would sneak in and start over his guitar, and it drove him crazy, but I did it anyway. And then we got enough of that going that we had some songs, and we went to one of the coffee houses that I was working at, and we did an open mic and people liked it. So then I asked the owner, can we do a show here sometime? And I did that and got all the people who I served coffee to to come that night to the show. And we just started doing more shows like that, you know? And then we made a record in the living room and burned some CDs and started selling those at the shows. June's first band. She's our guest this week on a special edition of Shiro's Live at On Air Fest in Brooklyn. And Valerie was telling us about getting her start in local coffee houses in Memphis. I met all these amazing artists and musicians in that space who would introduce me to different influences. It was kind of like being in school without being in school. (laughs) 
And so it started in Memphis, really. But I always sang ever since I was a little girl. I never played instruments, though, till I was about 22, 23. So it was later. But I sang and wrote songs in the band from 18 till we broke up that band and about 22, 23. So then I was like, I got to learn how to play an instrument because I can't get up there and sing only. Nobody's going to (laughs) come. So I started to teach myself how to play guitar. What was that moment like when you went solo and you were now just a woman out there on her own trying to make a go of it in the music business? I was scared. What was that moment like? I was like, it's going to take time is what I thought. I didn't have natural rhythm and maybe I still don't. I learned rhythm over time, but it was really bad. Like, off beat, like, so bad. And so I had to learn that. And I knew that because I didn't have natural rhythm, I shifted my goals and my role models to people like Mississippi John Hurt and Elizabeth Cotton, who they were older when their success really started to come. Even though Elizabeth wrote that song when she was 11 years old, Freight Train, still they were very much older before they were recognized in the world's uh, space or at all in the way of doing shows and stuff. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to do 10 minutes a day. And by the time I'm 80, if I can play like Mississippi John Hurt, then I'll be good. (laughs) That was my goal. 10 minutes a day between jobs. And so that's what I would do. And so I developed a 10-minute rule that I apply to a lot of things in my life now. Such good wisdom. It's like one little step at a time. Little steps, baby steps. Valerie, what was your perception of what being a musician means when you first started your career? And like, how has that changed? Your vision of it, how you felt it would be, and then the reality of what it became, the difference? (laughs) there? That's a funny question to me because I think what happened to me is that like I just started to really feel like I'm a musician. Recently? Yeah, like in the latest couple of weeks. (laughs) Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's taken me a long time to be like, oh, I am a musician. I had these ideas of what I thought a musician was, and I was never that to me. Like, I was a songwriter, but, you know, I just wasn't a musician. And I could sit around and write songs with an instrument or without an instrument. I write songs when I'm washing dishes, write songs when I'm driving, I write songs. And they don't have music as far as a band or an instrument. They're in my head, that part of it. But the songs, I could just do that all the time. And that's the fun part of it all to me. But now, like, I'm starting to really enjoy playing the instruments in a different way because, you know, I feel like I've learned more. And some people start when they're younger. I didn't start till I was in my early 20s. So I felt like the 20s and the 30s were studies. They were time where I was like trying to be a musician and hoping to be a musician. And I just got a little little degree of musicianship Mm. lately. (laughs) But, you know, I think anybody can be a musician too. And 
and can learn an instrument and play. And I think that we should learn how to play something, you know? I totally agree. Just for fun. Can I share something with you? That imposter syndrome of not feeling like you're an actual musician is something that I've heard over and over again over the past few years, just speaking to women and non-binary artists. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. That it seems like it's a very common thing for us somehow. And to become a musician, to feel like you finally arrived, like another thing that I've heard a lot is not only do I have to be as good as my male counterparts, but I have to be better. Hmm. Do you ever experience anything like that? No, not for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I just can't do that to myself. <laughs> I just can't compare myself in that way. Yeah. You know, I just have to create for myself because something needed to come out. It's like an impulse. And so I rarely think about anybody else in that space. You know, I just go into the creative bubble and what comes out comes out. So I don't think about it like that, really. I'm trying to think if there's anything about that that would apply to me. You know, because there's so many people making music, if I did start to do that, it wouldn't stop. Yeah. You know, it just yeah. wouldn't stop because one moment I'm chasing what it's like to be a man. The next moment I'm chasing what it's like to be uh, this type of star or that type of star. Or there's so many aspects to being in the music business from being an entertainer to being a musician, to being a songwriter, to being in a band, to being a solo artist. Like these are different things that you can become a master of. And some artists are masters at all of them. But... I don't know. I just feel like I can't do that to myself because I started so late. My perspective has to be like, well, I'm just going to get my ass up here and do the best I can. You know, like, what can I do today? Because I'm not going to be Hendrix tomorrow or, <laughs> or Dan or any of the people that I love and respect as far as musicianship side that are men. I'm just not going to be that. Or yeah. women who are even great, you know. I love Molly Tuttle's plan. She's amazing. And I just, if I took the time to just be like, man, I wish I could play like Molly Tuttle, that would end me. I wouldn't even learn another chord <laughs> because it's so, it's such a big goal, you know, to me. So I had to break it down into these small little bits where it's like, I'm just going to do this little bit of where I'm at with the squeaky court to court situation <laughs> and if that grows because things do grow that's the thing I learned about dreams is like you water it like a plant and it's gonna grow and it will you give it time it won't sometimes happen in your lifetime so that's the frustrating thing about dreams but they always either start something else and you can see it growing that way yeah. through others or you know they don't just die or whatever they morph they, even your dream like if you wanted to play a certain way like a dude or whatever then you start out down that path but it changes into something else maybe then it becomes photography or whatever it just keeps weaving itself if you keep dreaming you know Right. So it's more like being aware and being ready to change when that shows up for you. Yeah. We have a few songs queued up here. And I was just looking down this list that you and I worked up the other day. 
Are there any one of these songs that you feel like would be a good one to, to play right now? Well, I guess one of the older songs, which is Working Woman, that's one of the, from the first record, Pushing Against the Stone. And, you know, the video of it is really funny in some ways because it's like this band of white guys and I'm in a little old shack and I'm cleaning, you know, and singing the song as I play and they're taking naps and chilling. So, you know, Working Woman Blues is what that is. Just, you know, I think back about work I might have done in my life and working with my father with his businesses or the different jobs that I had or being on the road now and just work and how it changes. In your experience, how does being a woman and a woman of color affect how you get treated when you're in majority male spaces in music and how do you navigate those situations like in business dealings or in the recording studio, music venues, festivals? How do you think that that changes the dynamic or does it change the dynamic for you? Uh, I generally have more questions than anything around that subject. <laughs> questions like, what can a woman in the music industry do by herself? Do we need a man to get us to where we need to be? What women have gotten anywhere without a male presence? And, you know, what companies, management companies or labels or publishing companies are women-owned. There are some that are just men. There are some male-only companies. <laughs> and I just wonder, can a woman-only company make it? Can it? Would it be possible? And I'd love to see it. You know, maybe there are some, and I want to know more. And I also don't really have the answer because what kind of world do I want to see? Do I want to see a world where it's women-only companies without men involved in it? I don't think that's what I want. I think I, what I want to see is balance and equality and equal opportunity. I don't want to see an all one way or the other. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if it was possible? Maybe it could be a blend of all three. What are the possibilities is what my questions are for women who are in the industry. And I don't know what the answers are. 
I know it's hard to find a female producer. I was talking to a woman named Ebony on the phone the other day, and I just feel so happy to be talking to her because she is a female producer. But it's hard to find one. And one thing I can say is that every, my labels that I've signed to in Europe and here, the publishing company I signed with, all the big players or companies that I'm involved with, all of that came through a woman. And it was a white woman, white women, you know? So even what can a black woman do in this business? What power does she have? Who is she in interviews answering questions to and for? Yes. You know? And if she says something the wrong way, what does that do in the industry for her? You know? Good trouble, yeah, but what about the timing of good trouble? What if John Lewis was just some joker out here on the street talking about good trouble and never had the status for that to matter? Right. What does it matter? Like, I have nothing but questions. I, you know, and that's why a lot of times when these interviews come to me and these questions come to me around race and being a woman, I usually, not always, but sometimes I'll be like, I don't know. That might not be for me because what they probably are looking for is somebody to come in there and be like checking the box and giving an answer and saying, this is what we you know, need you to do. And I don't have any answers for it because all of it is a big question mark for me. And I don't want to be performative in my response, you know? Yeah. Hell yeah. And I see a lot of it and it just like, I want to see growth. I want to see real true action and systemic changes. And I think it's sometimes better for me to do that in the way of breath work than it is for me to be doing it in the way of being a talking head around it, you know, because there's a lot of conversations and a lot of voices. And I just wonder, this is another question. What does talking about it do? Like, you know, it does do something, but what does it do? Like, yeah, we need to talk about it. And there's certain things you couldn't say at certain times, (laughs) but... What does it really, really do? Does it allow the system to hear what you said and then rewrite itself to keep doing the same bullshit? I don't know. I don't have any answers, but I do ask myself these questions. That's a great question. They're (laughs) great questions. I think when we talked the other day and I said back to you, you know, sometimes the answer is the question itself. I feel like, first of all, we do need to question everything, question our reality. I'm big on that. As you said earlier, you know, the importance of dreams. I think the thing that talking about it changes is it gets it out of here and out of here, out to here. You know, this whole this whole festival we're here, right, is a podcast festival. We're here about being on the microphone and sharing experiences, sharing stories. And you can't fix something that you're not aware of. So when I first started this, project, I wanted to shine light in some of the dark corners, the things we don't speak about. It's all the things that we don't speak about that fester. So while I have the same question and I bang my head up against a wall because I have these conversations every single week, sometimes several times a day, and I feel so frustrated that nothing has changed. I've been in this business for 25 years, but at the same time, I want to bring it out of conference rooms and corners and private off mic conversations to a forum like this where I'm speaking to a group of people 
that are attentive, that are willing to listen and hopefully take it in. And that's how we start making change. Like you said, one little baby step at a time. That's my answer today. What do you think of that? It sounds good. In our world, I think I would love to see more of it out of the conference room from industry people of all races. Yeah. And genders, you know, because they are the ones who have the gatekeeping to what we as artists can do and say, getting attention. Now, we're going to do and say what we do because mm-hmm. that's who we are. But actually, like being heard, heard, <laughs> they can silence it if they want to. <laughs> and they sometimes they will, you know. So if they would come out and say what they want us to say themselves, then it holds them accountable for actually living that, you know, to me. But yeah, I mean, I have a lot of questions. We spoke also a couple of days ago about beauty and you said something that really stuck with me and I'm going to paraphrase, but that women draw out beauty in the world because we were talking about the male gaze. I was asking you about being interviewed, being photographed, being documented, being viewed by the public as you do as a public figure. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. I wanted to kind of bring that back up here and ask you what you meant by that about how women draw beauty out into the world. I just think women are beautiful. I think all beings are beautiful. But when we look at women, I guess they say they're fair. And so bringing attention to like flowers or things that are beautiful in that sense, you know, to me, many different ways to spend the moments of a day. Mm. And some people spend their energy going and doing things that are really destructive, like shooting up people at a grocery store. Other people could spend that same energy looking at the leaves of a tree for a few hours. That's what they did. And then hours after that. They were walking and just observing all the sparkly things that happened in the sidewalk. That was what the moments of the day were filled with. And to me, those things, the beautiful is not as recognized and given its due and credit as the horrors. And so because we are beautiful, we do have a power in a way of bringing the attention to more beauty you know, in our environment, in nature, in our image on the outside, but also in our image, the what we present inside out to the world. And mm-hmm. I just think that's a power to be in a woman. You know, you have this kind of little extra attention toward beauty that you can use as a color on the palette or in the toolbox to be like, hey, over here, there's something beautiful. Like sometimes if I just see like that color right there of that water bottle from Saratoga Springs, and I was just thinking a bunch of shitty stuff, it just shifts me. So I need beautiful things. And my aunt, she was running for Congress and, and she said that beauty was political. Everything's political. And I was like, what? But it is true. You know, it's a political force and it's fierce and it just doesn't get the attention or make the headlines, you know, in the way that it could if we shifted our energy from looking at the horrors. And then if we only look at horrors, you know, what you focus on is what manifests. Every dreamer knows that. Mm. And so if we're only looking at that all the time, 24 hours a day, just everywhere, 
then isn't that what we create? That's true. Another question. Yeah, it is a big question for me. How can the beautiful help to shift us and move us towards seeing things and creating new worlds? June, the Moon and Stars Prescriptions for Dreamers. Who are some of your sheroes? Sheroes? Oh, you know, I love Whitney Houston. I really do. Would you love her better? She was free in a lot of ways. And, you know, she had flaws, but she was still so beautiful and perfect to me. Mm-hmm. And I loved her. I still love her. I'm trying to think of other sheroes. There's a lot of sheroes, but... The biggest ones are in my family, like my grandmother and my mom. And I don't know when you said the word sheroes, Whitney Houston came to mind, but Gran and my mom are the biggest ones. And any women that you've encountered along the way in your music career that have been helpful, inspirational? Oh, yeah. One of the number one women who changed my life is a woman named Sheena Kane from Ireland. She took my record, shopped it to different record labels in Europe, and I got my first signing because she believed in it. And we met in a hotel room similar to this at Folk Alliance. And she was like, always staying involved in my life and even still is. And then after that, I met a woman named Sarah Bolshe who had the label. She ran the label there in Europe. And then I met a woman named Kate Hyman who worked at BMG. And then I worked met a woman named Margie Chesky, who runs my label at Concord. So all of these were very, very powerful women who helped me, you know, and believed in the music and the vision. So I've had a lot of great women, a lot of great sheroes, and I'm probably missing some (laughs) because there's even more. And you collaborated with some of your sheroes too. Yeah, I did. Marcella Avalar is the latest one I've collaborated with on the kids on book. book. And you have a lot of your sheroes in here too, Frida Kahlo. Yes. Right? Oprah Winfrey. She's a cool shero. This book is amazing, beautiful. Marcella Avalar is a Mexican American artist. And she did all the illustrations, which totally shocked me because I met her and 
we became friends and I said, hey, I'm writing this kid's book. I knew she was a graphic artist and a visual artist. Would you ever be interested in illustrating it for me? And she was like, yeah, send it to me. So I sent her the text only. And I said, just whatever you can do, whenever you can do it. It took us about three years. And we got to the end of the process and she sent it over to me and she had asked for pictures of my family just randomly one day, so I didn't connect it to the book. But when I opened the book, it had real drawings of my grandmother and my mom and my dad and my grandfather in there. And it just was so special that she made it personal in that way, you know. But those are my sheroes, my grandmother and my mom, the big ones. When you wrote your first book, Maps for the Modern World, did you feel your music coming through and do you think that now writing's music after writing the books has changed? Well, this poem started coming when my father passed. And the difference between the songs and the poems when I hear them is that I don't hear melodies. I just hear talking. And so I know it's not a song because the songs come sung to me. So that's kind of neat to have whatever creative muse or whatever is coming to me change its voice. It has many voices. Yeah. A lot of them, like low ones, high ones, in the singing sense. But in the poem sense, it's usually just a steady, same voice. So that's been a really fun thing for me to discover, that side of it and how it's different from music. I just think it's so amazing that you keep evolving and growing and keep creating. And thank you for doing this today. It's been so fun to talk to you. Thank you all for being here and being such a quiet, attentive audience. They were so good. Darling, you know where I would be. All that we share, all that we see, where would we be? Many thanks once again to Valerie June for being with us. We close the hour with Why the Bright Stars Glow, featuring Mavis Staples from the deluxe edition of her latest album, The Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers, out now on Fantasy Records. Our interview was taped in front of a live audience at On Air Fest at the Wythe Hotel in Brooklyn. Special thanks to Gemma Rose Brown and Scott Newman of Work by Work, who present On Air Fest as well as their technical team. And big thanks as well to our podcast distributor, Talk. Shiro's is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit shirosradio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the Shiro shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music. Music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.